Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining me today. We've got a really great guest today. We've got Dr. Ronald Swatsina, and he received his Master of Science and his Doctorate of Philosophy and Social Work from the University of Texas, Arlington. Currently, he's a Director Chief Scientist of Neurophysiology Research at Houston Neuroscience Brain Center and founder of Clinical Neuroanalytics, LLC. Dr. Ron is a licensed clinical social worker and board certified in neurofeedback and biofeedback by the Biofeedback Certification International Alliance. And for the past 23 years, he has analyzed and treated the most diagnostically challenging cases in both inpatient and outpatient settings. And 15 years ago, he started using QEEG data to help psychiatrists make a selection on meditation and titration. Dr. Ron, thank you so much for being with me here today. Well, thanks, Lee. I really appreciate this opportunity. I love to get the word out. Well, and, you know, I really wanted to have a brain expert to talk about how video games affect the brain, because I can't tell you how many times parents come in, they come into the Brain Performance Center, and they are experiencing, after 2020, I think it's not just children, I think a lot of adults have turned to gaming as a way to, you know, to entertain themselves. And they come in and they want me to tell them, they want me to say in front of the kids, oh, gaming's bad, 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 bad for the brain. So what do you think about that? Well, in the beginning, um, I guess it was 10, 12 years ago, uh, I had no idea how, what kind of impact video gaming had. And it was because of a young patient I had at the time, we were doing neurofeedback training with him and he was doing great during the week, but when he came back in on Monday, his brain was back where it was. And so I asked him, uh, I said, you do a lot of gaming? He said, yes. I said, about how many hours? He said, oh, probably close to 30 to 40 hours a week because he was doing it wow. and 12 hours a day on the weekends. And I said, that much? He said, yes. I said, well, let me look into that because something's not making sense here. You, And so what I found out and through the studies over in Japan that um, it actually creates an ADHD type uh, brain from the feedback that you get in order to make the games more exciting, they actually program them to make them addicting so that they keep giving you that reward over and over and over again. And so it does, after time, it dysregulates the brain. So when you talk about that reward, you're talking about that dopamine that gets going in the brain, because I know that, you know, those little nerve cells can get really confused. They do something and they like it and the brain releases dopamine. And then the more they do it, the more dopamine is released. And it goes from, I like that to, I want that to, I need that. Right, and that doesn't happen with everybody, but uh, just like any addiction, um, if a person's predisposed towards addiction, uh, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or video gaming, uh, they can very easily become addicted to it, and it does uh, 
from that point on, they have a very difficult time getting joy out of regular life's experiences. And it's only their choice, uh, their drug of choice, <laughs> the video gaming, uh, that will give them that uh, that high, that feeling, that euphoria that they're 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 seeking. And you can't get it from a music or a relationship or an acquired talent that you're proud of yourself for. Well, let me ask you a question, because most of the gaming is there's a lot of violent video games out there. Is that making our teens more likely to commit violent acts? Well, actually, um, the studies show, and I went to a presentation with the University, University of Texas Health Science Center. They invited me because I published an article on video gaming. And it, this one was on video gaming. And one of the statistics found that violent uh, juvenile crime has actually dropped since the advent of um, video gaming, uh, Mortal Kombat 1994. And so that was an interesting statistic. And I couldn't just sit there and say nothing. <laughs> I had to say, well, if you look at the male success rate in college, I think you'll find that it has declined at the same rate. And uh, without the study to back it up, I went back to my office and I set up a study and actually did a study about male success rate in colleges. And the attendance is about 50-50 male to female, but the males are only walking the stage uh, uh, less than 40% of the time right now. So there's a there's a cadre of those that we see coming back from uh, college defeated. They um, got to go to class or to play video games uh, un unhampered by parents yelling at them. Um, they, they stayed in the games and flunked out their first or second semester and come back defeated. Well, you know, it, it's amazing because I, I've had and I'm sure you have as well. Parents come in and they'll talk about, you know, I go up to his room and I, I knock on the door. They don't answer. So I just walk right in and they're sitting there in front of the, the Xbox or whatever. And it's, they've got that deer in the headlights look. They're just staring at the screen. And that that creates a tension in the family. Um because the parents feel like that they're they're being ignored, and then the kid acts like that they're you know they're why, why are you interrupting me? I am busy. Um, how do you help clients, parents and kids learn what a proper reaction is? How do you help them know when okay I need to let go of the Xbox, open the door, and let somebody come in? Well, I had a great case that. Um exemplified this last week, or, or I guess it was two or three weeks ago now. And um, this young man played a lot of video games, and it truly was, and I, I bring up first the point about addiction, whatever the addiction is. Addic uh, uh, drinking an excessive amount of alcohol doesn't mean you're an addict, but it means you're an addict when it's destroying your family relationships, destroying your social relationships, destroying your uh, school uh, grades start dropping. Um, you know, again, it's this, this, what is it doing to your life? And so if it's an addiction, it's an addiction. And I tell the parents, you know, it's just like if we, uh, if you were coming home and found your son in the room or uh, drinking alcohol, four hours every night and then, you know, all day long and night on the weekends, would you have alcohol in the house? And of course, everyone says no. I said, well, it's the same thing. If he can't regulate it, then it's uh, it's an issue. And there is a withdrawal that does occur with a lot of people that are very addicted to video gaming. And I said to this young man, I said, you know, you can do it 
the easy way or you can do it the hard way. The hard way is go cold turkey and for about four days you're going to feel miserable. I said, but then it's going to be done and you can go on with your life. I said, or you can do it the easy way and you can take a month, six weeks and slowly try to taper yourself down and everything else and see if you can regulate that. And if you can regulate that, you're doing better than most. But that's the easy way to do it. Well, he came in the next week to start doing some neurofeedback with me. And he said, I've decided to do it the hard way. I said, are you serious? He said, yes. I said, gosh, I'm just totally blown away by that. I think that's great. And I just got a report, um, just got a text from his neurologist who I sent him to. Um, this was a case that I did need to forward on to a neurologist. And the neurologist said, I just saw and he looks so good. Whatever you're doing is working. He is cheerful, a joy to be around. I said, you know, that's what we like to get from our uh, referring, uh, our doctors that we refer to and referring back to see what we can do. And this boy took a choice, made a choice. And like I say, he's, he's probably not the typical choice. The typical choice is I don't want to quit, you know, but this boy made a choice. So, you know, when we can intervene like that and present it like an addiction, it, addiction is an addiction. I don't care what it is. And this, this is, if it's destroying their lives and their futures and everything else, we've got to, as parents, we've got to be the strong ones and say, okay, everybody's going to have to suffer if we got to kill the games coming in, at, you know, at least in our homes. So going back to making that hard choice, do you, what, do some people actually experience physical symptoms of withdrawal? Yes, they really do. Um, I had a, a nuclear physician. Um, Nuclear radiologist, uh, which means he dealt with a lot of, um, you know, uh, the nuclear stuff that they put into you. And um, he was he lost his job in a prominent hospital because all he was doing is gaming. And I finally got through to him and I'm saying, you know, you, you, you've got your whole life is coming apart right now. Your wife's about ready to divorce you. You need to quit, and it's not going to be easy. And he went through the sweats. He went through a lot of different, you know, anxiety and sleepless nights and everything else. But in about four or five days, he came through it. And I wasn't worried about him. He's a physician. You're not going to die from withdrawal off of video games. But it's not going to be a very comfortable situation until your body readjusts to not having your drug of choice. So you say in four or five days, he was through it. And I am not an addiction expert. But with drugs and with alcohol, isn't that a longer period of time that the uh, Well, alcohol, you can't, it is about four or five days. That's why the initial detox is about that time to okay. get physiological addiction. Okay. The psychological addiction goes on for years, but the, again, back to the same thing with alcohol, um, you know, you can be away from alcohol for years if you were an alcoholic and all it takes is one drink and you're back where you were because the psychological addiction stays around for a long time. But the physical addiction to actual, actually uh, your, your substance of choice is, is the tough part. Well, that's good news to think that. I mean, I know I'm not saying those are easy four or five days. I know they're very difficult. But to me, that's very encouraging to think that if I can just get through the first four or five days, I'll lose that physical dependency. And then you do the hard work and start working on the mental and the emotional dependency. Well, that's why I talked to the parents. You know, I said, what else has he had interest in? And he had interest in playing a guitar. 
I said, go get the kid a guitar. <laughs> yeah. Something that's productive that he can make music with and get joy from and, and, and attract people to him and not away from him. And I said, you know, let's, I don't care if it's Christmas or not. Now's the time to jump on something like that. If they like robotics, let's get him into some big boy toys and get him out of the games. So and, uh, when somebody's gaming, what's going on in the brain? I mean, it's given them a lot of joy. They've got dopamine being released, but what's going on in the brain? Is the blood flow changing or? Well, video gaming, the brain does not make a distinction between real world uh, threat and what you're visually looking at. The examples of that are um, scary movies. I can't stand the things. I jump, my heart's racing, I'm all over the place, and I keep telling myself, this is just a movie, this is just a movie, and it doesn't go into my brain. So we're going through the same experience whether we're in real life or not, and that's because the communication between the limbic system, the subcortical structures that have to do with fight, flight, or freeze, are massive to the cortex. The cortex communication back down to the subcortex is tiny. So because survival is what humans are based upon. And so all that time spent in the games, this, I, I'm a Vietnam and a Desert Storm veteran. And when I got back from Vietnam, uh, I was not in the mood to do any school or in a, in a place to do any kind of school. I was so hyped up from the war. Um, I was just like a guy that had been on playing video games for many, many, many hours, months, years uh, in my time over there. And that changes the brain. The brain adapts to the environment it's in. Now. The, the cyber environment is not real, but the the amount of input that you see auditorially and visually in a video game and with the themes that they have, the first-person shooters and the combat games and everything else, these are just like real-life experiences to the subcortical structures of your brain. So what we've talked about so far in the show has been the males. And I do know that there are a lot of females that out there that are gamers as well. Have you experienced that also? Very few, but yes, there are some females. Now, I've got a theory or hypothesis I've been working on for years because I see that there's two types of gamers out there. Um, there's in the males at least, those are ones that, uh, I mean, they get into it, they've got the headphones, they're jumping all around the room, they're having these big attacks and everything else, and they curse and they swear and they drink, all while playing video games. These are my young adults or my late high schoolers. And then there's the other ones that are your um, nice young guys, kind of awkward physically, um, uh, psychologically, they may be a little bit more Asperger-ish, uh, kind of nice guys to be around, but these are the ones that also get into the games because then they feel like nobody's judging them, they're on an equal standing and everything else, and becomes very addicting to them. And I think this is the cadre of young guys that were losing in college that would have ended up being the engineers and the <laughs> physicists, but now with the games, they don't have that ability to delay gratification. They only know instant gratification. But now the girls are a different situation. The girls, it seems, we, uh, the reason more boys and, than girls are addicted to the games is because the amygdalas in boys are about 14% larger. And I think the girls that are possibly the gamers, and again, there's no science to back this up yet, but my hypothesis is that their amygdalas are probably larger than most girls' amygdalas, so they get more of a charge, more of a thrill out of video gaming. That's interesting. And, you know, I think I read in one of your articles that 
the girls that the female gamers sometimes they choose to play as male characters totally true because of the bias and because of the prejudice uh, built into the games and if they, if they don't hide their um, femaleness <laughs> they will be um you know uh, bullied in the normal ways that women usually get uh just unlike in the military they're just not accepted as equals yeah and that's that's a shame but that's a whole another different show <laughs> going back to the video games you know they are very hyper stimulating and you know when you get in that state of hyper arousal what you talked about the fight flight or freeze and when you get stuck in that state of hyper arousal how does that impact the brain well the brain is a, a remarkable tool for adapting to its environment and i describe it as um there's a way that the brain puts in filters to keep itself from being overstimulated an example i use is you take a a new york city boy and send him to idaho and trade him with a family that from and send the idaho boy to new york city the idaho potato farm boy is going to be overstimulated in new york city and the new york city boy is going to be bored stiff in idaho well that's because of the environment they grew up in they've got different filters in their brains in order to you know keep them in some sort of a homeostasis is what we refer to it as and so when you change that environment when you give them that much it's you know children there was a study out of washington state that found that every hour a child between 0 and 4 was placed in front of a tv or a video growing up between 0 and 4 increased their likelihood of having adhd symptoms by 9% and again it's building these filters in so when these kids get into school and big birds not up there jumping around telling them the reading them their abc's they get bored to death and that because the filters are in place and it and teachers oftentimes are not the most exciting people in the world that's that's true but you know i i've had clients and they feel like that they need that arousal that they get you know they're like i need that that's what kind of powers the brain um and i tell them there's a lot there more balanced ways to power the brain neurofeedback creating the right in creating some neuroplasticity in the brain but a lot of people really think that they need that hyper arousal what do you say to those people choose your career wisely <laughs> there are certain areas in which um ADHD video game brains perform very well and that's you know those types of very intensive very dangerous jobs join the military my gosh you want some hyper arousal you're going to get it then i was in the fire department for 20 years it served me very well in the fire department but if you want to be a jet fighter pilot you can't get through college in all the boring classes in college in order to get a degree to become an officer to become a pilot so it's back to that same thing uh, i think we're i think all humans are gifted with some sort of propensity towards certain professions and we got to understand that the ones that they're trying to prepare themselves for they may not want to do those professions because just like the adolescent crime uh, statistic i talked about the reason the adolescent crime has dropped is because real world hurts video games you just punch a reset button Yeah. Well, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times ADHD and the gaming brain. So, do you see those 
does a gaming brain, a gamer, his brain get into an ADHD state? Right. If you're not ADHD, it'll make you ADHD. If you're ADHD, it's going to make you worse. And that's the studies out of Japan, the Hikikomori syndrome uh, back in early two, uh, 2010, 2011. We're talking about that quite extensively. And the brain does get altered to where they have a bunch of frontal midline theta. And this uh, frontal midline theta is a slow wave activity that puts you more into a hyper aroused state um, of, you know, uh, from stimulation and it sticks without intervening. We have found that neurofeedback is one of the ways we can intervene to suppress this activity. And once we do that, the addiction drive towards the game slowly dissolves. So for someone that goes into gaming with ADHD, they're just gonna take a situation and make it worse. Correct. Wow. That's a scary thought because honestly, ADHD creates enough struggles in not just children, but in adults' lives. And it impacts the relationships they have. It impacts their, with their family, with their friends. It impacts their professional goals. Um, it's, it's an interesting age that we live in that we're starting to truly appreciate the power of the brain. And as you know, the good news is is that you can change that brain. If it's in a dysregulated state, we have the ability with neurofeedback and neuromodulation to change the brain. And that's, to me, that's a, a wonderful thing. And it's been around for a long time. It really has. But, you know, my big concern with gaming is, I mean, we, we all know the brain has the philosophy, use it or lose it. If you don't use those neural pathways, you lose them. So what happens when you do nothing but use them? You just, with gaming, you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. I mean, what are you doing to those neural pathways? Well, you're reinforcing them, you're branching them, you're making them better, bigger and better. And yes, true, they probably would make excellent fighter pilots with excellent reaction times. But in our world, you can't just go from a high school gamer to a fighter pilot. You know, you have to get through the tough college stuff. And that's what's creating all the uh, the failure rate in college that we shouldn't be seeing nowadays is because these brains aren't designed for learning. They're, they're designed for intense uh, excitement. And that's really, uh, we have to pay a certain amount of dues to get certain amount of degrees in order to become successful. And I shake these young guys' hands all the time and I said, I don't feel any calluses on your hands. They'll say, no. I said, do you know how to lay brick or do you know how to build a house? Do you know how to do this? And no. I said, well, you're going to be making a living, obviously, with your brain. And what are you doing to take care of that brain and to become excellent in some sort of facet of school that you can make a good living? You're not going to make it being a video gamer. Sad but true. But, you know, I've had parents tell me, oh, I, I think it's increased their eye-hand coordination. And I think, like, Minecraft, that has teaching them some skills, organizing, planning, strategizing. Well, how do you respond to that? It doesn't transfer to real world. Ah. Okay, that's the issue. Nobody that's ever been a Monopoly whiz has become a CEO of a company. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You know, all the stuff, and, and, and I hear the same, sorry about that, sorry, Ian's here. I hear the things all the time about um, uh, SimCity and, you know, uh, uh, Minecraft and everything else, 
But you ask these kids, okay, let's, uh, what kind of projects have you got coming up in school? Well, I got this and this. How are you, uh, how are you approaching that project? They're not using any of those skills in Minecraft in order to see how they're going to uh, execute and um, successfully complete a project that's only in Minecraft. So it doesn't go out of the games. The cyber world is not a real world. Right. So what are there some, before we go to break, we've got a few minutes. Let's talk about the warning signs because I get asked all the time, how do I know my kids spending too much time gaming? What should I be looking for? Sure. If you can't get their attention while they're in the games or they get angry and snappish when you try to tell them uh, it's time for dinner or it's time to stop or whatever, there's a warning sign. Their gate, gate, their grades over time will drop and their anger and their irritability. It's not just the teen years. It's the it's the addiction. It's the gaming and uh, the lying. Also, uh, the, the the ways that they can find ways to to pretend like they're not gaming while you're trying to watch what they're doing on their computers because they all need their computers. I mean, there's uh, it's addictive behavior. And that's what you got to look for. So if you see a change in their sleep pattern or if you see a change in their diet, I mean, I've had I've had parents say that they won't even stop to come down and eat. And then what do they do? They grab a bag of chips or a bag of cookies and they take that upstairs and they eat and they play. So you're you're hitting that brain double bad. Um, So those things like that. Do you think that the immune system is challenged when they're gaming? Oh, it's got to be challenged when you're gaming because we're not getting the sunshine we need. We're not getting the exercise we need. We're not getting the fresh air. I mean, there's so many things that uh, the humans are supposed to be exposed to in order to keep their immune systems up. And so that is really a valid point. Well, and I know in the last nine months, it's been very, very difficult. We've been confined and we've been... We've had new challenges placed in our life, and and gaming has been a really easy thing to do and to let your children do to give them some joy. And I'm a big believer in that we all need joy and we all need need pleasure in our life. But how much is too much? If I were to say, Dr. Ron, how much should I let my nine-year-old play? What would you say? Oh, just follow the guidelines that are out there, probably less than an hour a day. What if I said my 13-year-old? Maybe an hour and a half a day. The guidelines are out there. Uh, you just Google that, and you can find the recommended guidelines from the American Academy of Psychiatry. And, um, you know, I think that's what we, we should follow. But that's not the ones that are addicted to, to limit it to that. So it's – but we've got several other points we could discuss on it, but I know we're running short on time. Well, what we'll do is we'll take a little break, and when we come back, we will talk some more. But I think my walk away, my takeaways from what we've talked about so far is that you really have to be open and honest. And, you you know, you said, look for, are they lying? Are they lying about how much time they spend gaming? Because everybody's got to have their computer. How do you know? Maybe you think they're being the best dedicated student in the world. So it really does place a burden on the other family members it's like i guess it's like any other drug you got to help them you got to help them stay clean and that's not the easiest thing to do correct we'll be back after these messages 
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. It's words you've never heard. While visiting a ranch in Colorado, I met a goat named Lucky. Domesticated goats are sometimes kept as pets, similar to a dog or cat. When Abraham Lincoln was president, his sons kept two goats in the White House with them. There are about 450 million goats in the world. Male goats are called bucks, and female goats are called does. Of course, the young goats are kids. Sometimes racehorses are given a goat friend, so they won't be lonely in the stall. The phrase, getting someone's goat, comes from the unsportsmanlike practice of stealing the competition's goat to unsettle the horse before the race. Goats need a lot of room to roam so they don't feel confined. What's the fear of being penned in? Clithrophobia. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back and I've got Dr. Ron with me today and we've really been talking about video gaming and how it impacts your brain and it, but it impacts you on a on an even deeper level. And you know, socialization. If you're not if you're not interacting with people, if you're interacting with a cyber box, what's that doing to you, Dr. Ron? Well, I had this uh, interesting boy. Uh, he was in his, well, he was in uh, just out, just as a senior in high school when I first started working with him. And um, he seemed to have two personalities. He had the personality he was sitting in my chair, but then he uh, he talked about this, the video gaming, how much he loved it, and how great a gamer he was, and everything like this. And I said, well, tell me, tell me more about this. Um, but I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to your cyber entity. What, what is his name? And he said, which one? I said, your best one. He said, Crusher Warrior. I said, I want to talk to Crusher Warrior. And he sat up real straight and he said, what do you need? I said, Crusher, I need to talk to you about this player here. What, uh, can you evaluate him? And he said, yes, he's lazy. He's fat. He drinks. And he's useless. I said, what do you do with a player like that? He reached over, like going on his computer, and he said, delete. I said, delete? He said, yeah, He's there's too much wrong with him. You don't want to fix him? You know what's wrong with him? No, delete. And at that point in time, I realized he be had become just a life support system for a cyber entity that didn't exist. He had no self-esteem. He had no sense of who he was as an individual. Now, when I was in high school in the 60s and 70s, 
our video games and video games didn't exist, but ours, mine was football. I ate and drank football. The only conversation I had was in a huddle. And let me tell you, I was pretty hampered when I got out of football. Uh, I had a lot of concussions too, but that's another story. But I was not ready for college. I didn't know who I was. I, I had no communication skills. I was socially awkward. Um, but this was a, a wake-up call to me that uh, I had a lot of making up to do. And so the years between middle school and high school are so critical for road development and how, who you're going to become when you become an adult. And it doesn't occur in the games, and you're not working on your role uh, you're not learning martial arts or you're not learning to shoot yourself, uh, shoot, you know, uh, weapons or anything like this. It's all in the game. So I think that's where we got to look at it. These children have got no sense of who they are, no role identity, and it's hampering them in their future. They may come off okay, and, and I've heard this from several employers, on paper they look good, uh, in their emails, they look excellent, but when they try to interview, it's absolutely a disaster. So another part that's uh, a problem. Well, and I think that with the way we communicate now over our phones with texting, that kind of plays into that. I've had a client that, you know, I said, what are you going to do? When you get finished school, because he was a senior in college, and you start interviewing, I said, do you think they're going to text you the questions? <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of looked at me, well, well, oh, I hadn't thought that far ahead. Exactly. And that's why I think it's time we stop and we, we start to look that far ahead. But, you know, we've talked about, there's no doubt that too much gaming has a negative impact on the brain. In all your years of experience, are there any positive observations you can share with us? Well, I've got a unique observation, and I, I don't understand why, but it seems that those kids, those children and adolescents that are good in math and good in music don't seem to become addicted to the games. And I know music is just a mathematical language, so there's got to be something there that inoculates them against gaming uh, as an addiction or against any addictions. I've never seen um, uh, these kids get really addicted to the games, and they some of them play a lot, but can walk away from it any time, don't have a problem with it. So that's one thing. Uh, if you want to maybe inoculate your children against the games, maybe you really help them get interested in playing a musical instrument or getting into higher math or something. Well, you know, that makes me wonder because usually in my world, math is something that, I mean, it's a whole head function, but the parietal lobes play a big part of that, of processing the information. Do you think it has anything? Does it link to what part of your brain is, is more regulated? I don't know. I'm still curious about that, and then one of these days uh, I will try to do a present, you know, propose a study that we look at that part. But it is an interesting concept. Uh, it's hard to find kids now as a control group that never gained. Uh, you know, they just don't exist. So it's hard to develop a study when you have no control group. That's true. Do you think there's any difference in gaming on a phone or gaming on a computer? I expect the intensity is a lot less on a phone. Uh, the intensity's got to be a lot less sitting across the room with the controller rather than um, right there in your face with your, you know, gaming computer. But um, uh, again, anything that's pushed to the point to where it's affecting your family life, your social life, your work, your school, that's an addiction. We need to really watch it. 
Absolutely. So let's kind of shift gears here. And let's talk about how gaming changes the brain. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the ADHD, but I mean, does it actually create structural changes? I wouldn't say structural changes, but I would say functionally it changes the brain. Uh, it changes the brain to be more, um, like I said before, uh, more set up for high intensity um, audio and visual stimulation. And that uh, heightens certain pathways in your brain, auditory pathways, visual pathways, reaction time, and everything like that. That's why the, the reaction time on these kids is, is superior. Um, but then the parts of your brain, your limbic system, I'm, not, I'm sorry, your Wernicke's area, Broca's area, your receptive and la uh, expressive language areas, uh, they're not being reinforced. They're not being uh, grown as they should and pruned properly throughout their uh, span of, you know, these kids from, you know, middle school all the way through high school. Well, we both know the good news is, is you, with neurofeedback, you can open those pathways. But the changes in the brain, I mean, I think you, you hit it on the head when you said it changes more of the functionality. Because I know kids, I've worked with kids that, and I've worked with adults that their biggest source of pleasure comes from gaming. I mean, nothing else. And is it the adrenaline rush that you get when you're gaming? I'm not a gamer, so I'm I'm lacking in experience. Well, it is the adrenaline. It is the uh, uh, the thrill-seeking uh, pathways are are monstrous in these individuals. And the sad thing is, the small things in life that should give you pleasure, including relationships, including um, uh, music, including watching the sunrise, the little things that they're really missing, all of a sudden the world becomes a very dark place outside of the games, and that's why they only want to stay there. So if the only stimulation that you're really responding to is coming from gaming, you're missing out on a big part of life. Right, and that has affected relationships. There's a cadre of now uh, young adults that are married and the guys get into the games and, um, uh, well, they say, well, at least I'm not going out and drinking with my friends. <laughs> that, to me, is not a very good excuse. Uh, but then that, what is that doing to the relationship? Because relationships take work. And all those hours spent in the game and not on your building your lives together is going to have some severe cost to a lot of uh, young couples. Oh, I can't imagine how I would feel if my spouse paid more attention to a computer screen than he did me. It, it, it would feel like I was being rejected. Totally. You know, and, and that's the bottom line that uh, as guys, and I'll speak for the guys, we have no idea what kind of impact our behavior has upon the women in our lives. And nor do we really care much if it's not affecting food, water, and video games. <laughs> so video games is now on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, huh? <laughs> to some people it is, yes. No, I'm sure to some people it is because we both know that first that first hierarchy has to do with feeling physically safe. And we have everything we need. And if gaming becomes something you need, there it goes. That's right. 
so and the it, really way to make money with it. That's the problem. As men, we have only one choice in life. That's to be the primary breadwinner for the family. We can't get pregnant and stay home. <laughs> I don't know. Things are changing, Dr. Ron. <laughs> well, we can possibly be... But stay-at-home dads. Husbands, uh, you know, but yes, yeah. stay-at-home yeah. dads. And, and uh, accolades to them, but uh, what kind of dad is going to be playing 10 hours of video games and you get home from work and there's no... Nobody's taking care of the kid. The diaper's dirty, and the uh, uh, the house is a mess. You know. Well, and that's not going to work. We both know that. But I think we also both know the more you game, the more you want a game, right. and that is the problem. And that is, you know, what can you do if you've decided? You talked. You you spoke earlier. You shared a story about someone that you know you can take the hard choices, or you can hard way or the easy way. What if you wanted to do the easy way? I mean, is there a detox program for someone? A, a slow over time. Um, I don't think there is that. Uh, I think it's just, can you down-regulate the time you spend when you got a video gaming that's wanting to keep uh, rewarding you for your attention to get to the next level and to give you more dopamine? Uh, that's why I say truly that is the hard way to do it. The easy way is to do it quickly, but I, I wanted to present it like that to him. Um, but I, I don't know of a program that we have that has been successful in um, doing a slow uh, titration off of the video game. Well, you know, it's interesting when you think about other addictions and there's, you know, with, with alcohol or with any drug, you, you, they, it follows the 12-step approach. Um, there needs to be something like that for the video game addiction. Yes, but the first part, the first step is to uh, to come to some sort of terms that you have no control over it. And that's the big thing, in, uh, especially with the young, uh, I'm saying the guys, the young guys, uh, that, it does, it's not controlling me. I, it's just what I love to do. It's what I'm good at. You know, leave me alone. Well, so, you're talking about the psychology behind right. it right and you know how do you get somebody to break through that it's to the point to where I think the parents really have to play an important role that you want to make your house a place our job as parents our primary job as parents is to prepare our children for to launch into the adulthood it's not to make them happy and I think that when I hear a young boy say that I can't wait to get out of the house, I, I, I'm, I'm tired of the rules and da 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 da. I'm so, and I say, what are your plan? He said, well, I'm going to get this degree and such and such, and I'm going to do this and this and this. I said, sounds like a good plan. I look over the parents. You've done a great job because that's exactly what we want. We want kids to want to become independent, not to want to stay in the house with mom and dad and live in the basement and play video games the rest of their life. Well, you know, what I have found is when I talk to people, you know, that, that are gaming too much, how'd you get started? You know, well, I don't know. I was just so bored. I didn't have anything else to do. And my response to that is anytime you're bored, you're, you're getting yourself in trouble. But how do you get reach out? And like you mentioned earlier, if you're really good at music, you tend not to get addicted. 
pick up a guitar, pick, get a set of drums. You know, I think that's something that we as parents have to do is focus on what we can expose our ch- our children to and how we can keep them involved enough in daily life so that they don't get so bored. Well, I wish that parents would go back to the place where when I grew up, um, we didn't have games. We didn't have instant stuff. You know, we had a, we found a walnut and a broomstick and we had a baseball game. We could, we had to create stuff to entertain ourselves with. There's, there's very little creativity in what kids are given nowadays to entertain them. And, and if it breaks, there's no fixing it. They just buy me a new one, mom. And, um, I think that has been a, a, a big deterrent to creativity. And what I say is why aren't parents buying them, uh, a, um, uh, a birdhouse. Let's teach you how to build a birdhouse or a doghouse. Let's get a let's let's get a something to do with drones. Let's let's show you what it is to have something real to create yourself to work in a period of time on, and then to be able to revel in what you've just created. Uh, the parents have got to take an active role instead of just an entertainment role. They're providing entertainment instead of learning. And I think that's where I would go back to the parents and I would say, do your kids, does your young man know how to change a tire on a car? Do they know how to check the oil? Do they, <laughs> do they know how to uh, unclog a sink that stopped up? All these things that we 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 got taught when we were young um, as just young males, they're not getting taught anymore. They're, it's just we provide entertainment for them to keep them off our backs. At the same time, they're not getting the fundamentals of what what it, how about learning to cook there's another area that for men and women and so many, much of that is going by the wayside it's christmas time how many of the parents have there have they actually got with their kids and built a gingerbread house that would be something probably cool to do to show you about drying times of icing <laughs> i just built a gingerbread house so i know about this stuff now but <laughs> And how creative you can get. I mean, you've got a blank canvas. You can just be as curious about what you've put out there. And that sounds like fun. That sounds like something I might have to do before Christmas rolls around, actually. But, you know, I think that our times have changed. We have a lot more single parents. And that it's hard when you're a single parent and when you're working all day. And you're you're trying to be the mother, the father, the breadwinner. Um, it, it is hard. It's hard for them. And and honestly, I've had parents just say at the end of the day, Lee, I don't have it. I don't have anything left. So I think that that I certainly want to respect and appreciate that. But my advice on that has been, you know, look at your support system. Look at all the siblings. If you have three kids, not to say to put the older kid in the role of mom or dad, but as a mentor, because mentors can be very inspiring. They really can. There's so many people that can help out in a family situation. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. And I think we need to get back to that state where we really want to prepare them for adulthood and that's what our jobs are not to just entertain them until they're 18 and then kick them out the door you know we've got to take a more active role and and try to help them along that path and when they show interest in anything let's follow up with that that's that could possibly develop into a passion for them the rest of their lives you know i thought just brought a thought to mind so do you think that there's any correlation between 
doing puzzles and gaming? Puzzles is another one of those things like video gaming that can be a, an internal isolate to keep you from dealing with your stuff. Um, they're a mindless game of trying to, you know, uh, keep your mind occupied for a certain period of time. So I, and I've seen people uh, do jigsaw puzzles around Christmas and get everybody out there and that kind of stuff. And that can be a social thing, but uh, back to the same thing. Anything that you do to keep you from dealing with the things that are going on now in your life, which a lot of people, a lot of young guys and girls use video gaming for that, just so they don't have to deal with their shortcomings. Yeah, and that's where the psychology comes into it. Um, it's easy to it's easy to internally isolate and find other ways to distract yourself so you don't have to deal with what's going on in your life. Well, my one of my big concerns with the whole gaming community is I had a young lady that I worked with, and she was 15 years old, and she. She and her dad gamed a lot, and that was a, a way that they connected. And he actually got her into this gaming community, and she got a boyfriend. And I said, you have a boyfriend? Have you ever met him? Oh, no, he's in Indiana. Oh, okay. Um, and for her, that gaming was a direct way to keep that relationship alive. That's a big concern I have. Right, because you don't know if that boy in Indiana is a thirty-some-year-old man. No, or or where if he where is he? Maybe he's not in Indiana. So, mm. you know, I think that the more that the work that you do, and the little bit of work that I do, that we can put the emphasis on the importance of the brain and how we go, the life choices and the lifestyle decisions that we make, and how that impacts the brain. The the better that it is. And I just kind of wanted to switch gears a little bit because you've done an awful lot of analysis and research. And I actually caught a YouTube that you were on in Australia. And you were talking about how you can use the qualitative EEG data that we, we both get if we're going to do neurofeedback, but how you can use that to select medication and how to get the right amount of medication. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Well, this all started back in 2005 when I start, first started doing these uh, these EEGs and uh, quantitative EEGs. And within the first few, um, within the first month, I started getting a lot of these abnormal ones called by the electroencephalographer. You have to have both the EEG and the quantitative EEG in order to understand which medication would be preferential and which one wouldn't. And there's a um, complete science behind it. It's called pharmacal EEG, and it's been around since the late 60s, early 70s, but it never really took off in mainstream psychiatry uh, until I was working in a center and I had a psychiatrist who um, uh, I was able to team up with and share this information, and it provided him information that he didn't have in order to um, select a medication and titrate the medication to a point of what the brain needs, not just what the symptoms are, but the brain has certain, uh, if it's very fast, if it's very slow, you know which medications speed it up, which medications slow it down. So that's been, of course, a study I've been in, and I've published papers in this area for uh, the past, uh, well, since 2012, I've been publishing this area. I found there was only four primary reasons why medication fails in all of psychiatry, 
And once you had those neurobiomarkers, it was then obvious which medications could possibly work, and in some cases, no medications would work. But this is a this is a topic we could spend hours talking about because I, I, it's near and dear to me because I'm so tired of uh, the the way people just psychiatrists. I feel sorry for having just to use a set of symptoms to select a medication, and 40% of the time the real good ones are right. 50% of the time maybe, but a lot of the times those medications don't work. And and the sad thing is that we've had this information out there for years. And the pharmaceutical companies don't really want this information out because their profit is based on medication failure because 30, 40% of medications fail, but that's their profit. How many people have medicine cabinets full of medicines that had a bad side effect? Now, there's another component to that called the MTHFR gene and called uh, that enters into it, which we could talk about at some point in time. And then it... Uh, about how we process, how our body processes the medication. So there's a lot to this. It's not as simple as looking at a brain map and knowing which medication you'll need. Uh, there's a lot of components to this, but I'm trying to uh, get the information out that if uh, a psychiatrist has got a difficult case that's failed on two or three medications in the past, uh, we possibly can provide some scientific data to explain why the medications fails and then possibly go into a direction that would help. Uh, but you can't remove the psychiatrist from the, you can't be done automated. This is not it. The psychiatrist is still in charge of the case and has to understand the whole family history and everything else. All I'm looking at is what does the brain say it needs and why did it react so wrongly to the prior attempts? Well, I think that is a, a fabulous start because the clients that come in my office, a lot of them are, are getting medication from a general practitioner and they're, they're pharmacology trained. That's what they know. And, you know, they'll be on it for a couple of months and then they'll start having side effects. And then we'll just add another, a little something different into the, the combination. And that creates even bigger problems. So I am thrilled to hear about the work that you're doing there. And, and I am not licensed to manage meds and I don't really understand meds because they've never worked for me personally. But I do think that we've got to integrate the, the whole pharmacology into the neurofeedback and the neuroscience world. So I, I've enjoyed having you on the show, and I've learned a lot. And I feel like that the work that you're doing is, you know, you're really taking it to the next level using the QEEG to help. Because most, I'd, and this isn't a fact I know, but I'd be willing to bet that medication is 85% of the time the first line of treatment for any mental health issue. And like I said, that's, that's a, a guesstimate, but from, I'm just based on the feedback that I get in my office. And my response is never would medication be the first nor the only consideration for a mental health illness. Your quick thoughts on that? I think we're fortunate now that neurofeedback is starting to be paid by some of the insurance companies out there for at least for ADHD and brain injury and substance abuse in the state of Texas. And I think that's a, a great compliment. Uh, we've been fighting this for the longest time because um, paying out of pocket for mental health, even though it's a, it, we've got the studies to show that uh, neurofeedback is a permanent solution, not a temporary patch. 
um, a lot of people can't afford getting into it. And so I think that that's where I'm hopeful that neurofeedback will take off and become a, an option for more people as we uh, go into this next uh, 2020 through 2030. Thank you so much, Dr. Ron. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for this invite, and uh, I appreciate everybody out there listening. For more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, right, Spotify.